Hello to our listeners and welcome to TNT ESQ. Along with my co-host, Reese Thomas, I'm Teresa Quinlan. We make up TNT. For those of you that don't know, it's our name, Thomas and Teresa. We're here to explode the status quo, because this series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently, so we can start doing differently. Terry is a fellow member of our Humans First Club, and oftentimes he brings into our conversations interesting insights and quotes, perspectives, a reference to a book, someone no one has ever heard of before. And almost every time I recognize in myself that I'm left with a pause or there's a little bit of silence left to consider what Terry has contributed into the group conversation. I like to call this wisdom. Welcome, Terry. We are very excited to have you with us this morning. I'm excited to be here. you got a great show going here, and I think the message and the relevance to the world is very at present. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Thank you, Terry. So we are going to dive into an actual, like, straight-up topic, self-sabotage and procrastination. How did this topic become something that was of importance to you? I believe that self-sabotage turns into procrastination and then they feed on each other. How do we start with self-sabotage? Well, the Q&A sequence that I created 10 years ago was designed to fix me. I am a lifelong self-sabotager, starting very early in Cub Scouts and going straight through the Navy and everywhere else. Quick, fast success, self-sabotage. It wasn't so bad in the Navy because I changed bosses or I changed jobs every two, three years so I could outrun it for the most part. But even then, you know, when I left the Navy at the ripe old age of 38, I didn't know who I was or what I was going to do. Military vets out there, they they understand that part because everything is done for you. You Mm -hmm. just make decisions based on what you've been trained for however many years. Now you make all the decisions and everything you do. My journey of self-sabotage really hit a crescendo, and, and I was, just gave up on life. I was living in a 28-story condo complex, got up on the roof, ready to take one more step, perfectly calm. I was done. Mm. And then there was this voice said, turn around, I got work for you. And I turned around as if there was a person there. When I turned around, there was no, nobody there. But I got off that roof, and I never came back. And within three months... I created repetitive behavior cellular regression. That's a question and answer sequence. It's not therapy or counseling. Over the years, we've developed it into the product that it is today. It's very consistent. It has a 90% success rate through the first year. Self-sabotage is a behavior. Procrastination is a behavior. Nothing's broken. There's no dis-ease in there. Something is driving you to think that. And something is controlling your ability to stop thinking. Now, behavioral science agrees that somewhere between four years old and seven years old, the human mind matures to a point where it can make decisions, start decisions, stop decisions based on logic. Now, if something else is controlling your ability to do that, two things happen. This on-off switch for repetitive thoughts, you don't know that it's there much less where is because it's been hidden by an amnesiac event way early in the child's life. 
Amnesia, we know, is a protection device. Something very emotional happened to you, and you walled it in. Okay, that wall is an active block, and that block's job is to protect you. A lot of people don't understand that. And since it's a protection device, it's not going to get worse or better. It's just going to get better at what it does for deflection. So when later on in life, when another big event happens emotionally, you can see something that you don't understand and lose it. The mind is very unique. What it does do, though, is this deflection system goes, okay, Terry, think about this for a while. And pretty soon, you've got all this interaction going and no source to stop it. And that's where procrastination then comes in. I don't really want to do what I've just decided to do because I don't want the result that I think is going to happen. Because self-sabotage tells me that it's not going to turn out right anyway. So I talk myself out of stuff over and over and over again. That's procrastination. So the two marry each other at a certain point. This deflection system is driving the whole thing. In fact, uh, Dr. Sigmund Freud, he was researching and he felt very sure that what people did in their behavior as an adult stemmed from something bad happening to them as a kid. Yeah. He was getting some success using hypnosis at the time. And then some people started hypnotizing people and teaching them to steal for them while they were hypnotized. And this hysteria went all over and they outlawed hypnosis. Well, that was the main driver for him to go back and do this research to help people go back. He ended up addicted to cocaine himself and in 1939 committed suicide. So the word on the street was, yeah, he did some good work, but he was a drug addict and killed himself. Yes and no. He was trying. And at a point, like me, he stopped trying. Sigmund, I found what you were looking for. Long answer to your question. Thank you for sharing that journey. Yeah, so two things come up for me there when you talk about self-sabotage. The first question is one that I hear a lot. Is it really self or is it something external that you're manifesting as self? And then also as you were talking about self-sabotage, it made me think, well, is there a link? Is there a, a difference between self-sabotage and self-protection? You were saying that, you know, the brain is creating this amnesia to protect you. So is self-sabotage really self-protection? Mind is a fickle thing. Each of our journeys, we understand that the mind can do a lot of different things. I've been, and my company, nobody's ever had two in a row because the mind takes in a couple of million memories a day. So there's plenty of work. For people that are in the throes of self-sabotage, this is a learned response from a significant event in childhood that repeated itself. A lot of times we've found that when people come to us in self-sabotage and or procrastination, they've had this since they were kids. It's just over and over and over again in their life. And they're at enough is enough. We go, okay, it's not a problem. We know about where it's at and here's how we're going to fix it. So then we explain how that happens. Now, traditional behavioral health comes into the front of the brain and works backwards in known memories that you have issues with. Then there's modalities that come in from the side, EMDR, NLP, all those kinds of things kind of come into the side. And they still work with known memories that you have issues with. We use the five senses. The five senses are here at the brainstem. We help a person find through a new neural pathway back to that early time in their childhood using the five senses. 
Now here's what we found consistently about this deflection device. As we get older, we learn linearly. A, B, C, D, F, G, two plus two is four, and it defends you linearly because that's the way you learn and it knows how to manipulate that. We go abstract with the senses. It doesn't know what we're doing. It tries to throw us off track, add extra memories in a, in a memory, those kinds of things. But what ends up happening is through three memories, the client walks in the back door of a memory that happened when they were months old, two weeks old, a year old. And it's as fresh, my friends, as if it happened two minutes ago. And all of their senses are awakened at that point. They know what they smell, hear, see, they're, what they're touching in the memory. It's acute. Here's the most important part. They see the face of the person who created the event. Now they get to tell that person anything they want without getting out of their chair for as long as they want. And some of them spend over an hour of nonstop talking because they have this thing, that person ruined their life. All of this emotion and all of this angst comes out. And when they're done, the client has this profound inner peace. Mm -hmm. 10 days to 15 days later, the mind starts saying, Terry, you've been having fun. But you're not acting and vibrating like you have all your life. So that's not normal. What it thinks is normal is that old vibration. So it starts getting you to think about other emotional events that occurred after the original one mm -hmm. to set in a new amnesic event to get you back to normal. But we teach our clients how not to do that, how to be present with the way they start thinking if they start thinking and talking like they did before the process ago. It's not me anymore. Stop that. And the brain will go, okay, I'm all right, Terry. And we teach them how to be present with that and how to start a neutralize. Mm -hmm. It is fascinating how the brain works, how trauma from a young age before we had language to express it is then stored uh, within the body. And so traditional therapies like talk therapy, until you can access the fullness of the memory, you can't talk it through because you really still don't know what it is. But you may be feeling and sensing what it is physically usually or behaviorally and that is part of the therapeutic approaches is that you you can't do talk therapy straight up because you can't access it this way through the front of the brain or even the side of the brain as you were expressing so it is amazing how much is out there to help people work through these behavioral things they see showing up in adulthood i'm curious to know if there are patterns in the behavioral expression that self-sabotage or procrastination draw like to particular types of memories or it can really be anything that was a young event and this is how it's expressing itself? It can be anything. What that person reacts to, and I'll give you a perfect example here. This client, four months old, sitting on the carpet in front of the couch. Daddy is taking pictures like daddy does all the time. Mm -hmm. Behind daddy and straight ahead of her, is a little boy, her cousin, who was about three years older than her, was on the floor crying, and his dad, her uncle, was beating him, telling him to shut up and be good, knock it off. And this little girl, my client, is sitting there, I don't understand, why aren't you helping daddy? When I cry, you pick me up. Daddy helped him. I don't understand. Bam, amnesia. Mm -hmm. It was an observation. It had nothing to do with her. It was what she 
understood in her world and created an event. She knew enough about what was going on and reacted so profoundly that it created the amnesic event. So when I'm young like that, is explanation the only thing that would help or could the physical act of comfort provide enough validation for whatever the individual is experiencing to prevent the amnesic reaction? Or do I need to have some sort of an explanation, even if I don't have language? I may not understand what you're speaking, but that works just fine. I'm not sure verbal will do it. Certainly mm. everything that pre-language, pre-walking, is all about touching, being cuddled, and being held. That's the reinforcement because the child has no language skills. The whole amnesia is, is created because they have no ability to, one, communicate, two, process it. What happens with amnesia is the brain shuts down. You can get an amnesia at 25 years old. Age doesn't matter. Thing is, that little child has nobody to talk to. And the parents don't see a change the day after the event occurred as opposed to the day before. So that when somebody in that situation becomes amnesic over a severe emotional event, there's people that know her on both sides of that memory and they can work them through that and get them out of it really quickly. If nobody knows anything's broke, what do you do? You don't know right. what you don't know. Is it more often not that it's an emotional reaction that causes this amnesia rather than a physical reaction? Or as you said, everyone's different. Many examples of both. Well, there is both. And I believe that from the physical event, the emotional took over and that's where the amnesia came from. A child being raped or something like that, very physical, and then it's emotional. They can't process what happened. They can't even tell anybody what happened. I believe that very well, if it starts physical, it will end up emotional. That's really where that comes to play. Here's an example of, of how that can be very funny. Nine years old, raped by an adult. Every day from that point on, this woman woke up in pain and afraid every day until age 45 when she went through the CR process session. The night at 1.15 in the morning, we were done. At 6.15 in the morning, she texted me. I just woke up pain-free. I love you, and I'll see you in a week. Awesome. Her life of being victimized, in order to protect herself from being victimized again, she became the predator married four times, and six additional serious relationships, all she sabotaged. She was not going to get hurt again. She would hurt rather than get hurt. The physical can certainly be a continued part. That's psychosomatic. It's real. Now, self-sabotage is the core experience. Procrastination is one of the expressions of self-sabotage. What might be some other ones that people are experiencing from self-sabotage other than procrastination? Mm -hmm. Because if we want our audience listening to kind of go, but I don't procrastinate, I might be self-sabotaging. So what might be some other expressions that could be maybe subtle to some that are a little bit more common? A good example of that would be one of my clients who has been a lifelong procrastinator. When we found the active block, and neutralized it, we also found about five years of tough times for the family. And there was constant fear in the family unit, dad losing his job, them losing the farm. Mom took care of the farm and the house and the kids. And dad had two full-time jobs to keep that place going. Well, if I don't do my homework 
yes, I'll get in trouble, but it won't be as bad as putting all that effort into the homework and then have it be wrong. So you just talk yourself out of it, which is just as powerful as expecting to be physically abused. I think it's more powerful because physical abuse, you can kind of wash away those bruises or whatever. They will go away. The psychosomatic part of it, not so much. So when I was listening to you telling these stories, one thing that comes up to me is connection. Like there must be something really special that you are doing something so literally life-changing for these people. You said it happens quite quickly, but I'm getting the impression that it's a repeated process. And you said maybe over 12 months you work with them. Maybe it's longer than that. What is that connection that you get? What is the fulfillment that you get from having that, achieving that transformation in someone? Is that the big driving force for you, the connection? It must be huge. It's so amazing. I change and save people's lives every day, and so do my people all over the world, seven languages. Here's the thing. When a person comes to us, they set up a, a CR process session. It's about three hours long. When the person is in front of us, sitting in a chair like I am right now, with their eyes closed, they are fully present with everything that's going on. And then, just before we start, we set up the mind to think in a certain way. And we all say this sequence in exactly these words because they work every time. And that is, there are no bad memories, there are no good memories, there's simply memories. Now I've disconnected the worry about having to think about a bad memory. So I'm setting up subconscious. Now, take me to a place and a memory that you enjoy remembering and review with friends and family regularly. Now, I didn't say it was a good memory, I didn't say it was a bad memory, because I set it up to be neutral. Now, when you get there, tell me where you're physically located. Are you sitting on a chair? Are you laying on the grass? Wherever you are. But I need to know what you're doing. In my mind's eye, I'm going to be there with you. Now, freeze frame this memory into a photograph. No motion, no emotion. Now, we know in behavioral health, number one sense is smell for memory recall synchronization. Mm -hmm. So we always start memory one. There's three memories that we go through. There's a sequence. Memory one, please describe for me one thing at a time what you smell. The reason why we go through all of that in the order is to lock the mind into abstract thought, not linear. Stories are linear. Movements linear. Talking about what all I smell or see or taste, that's not linear. Here's what happens. If I was sitting there with you, there are certain things I expect to see, smell, touch, taste possibly, and hear. We're looking for missing, odd, or can't be remembered information. All right, we're at high school graduation, laying on the grass on our right side, watching guys playing ball. I expect to smell grass. I expect to possibly taste alcohol. There are certain things that I expect to witness in this thing that I'm looking for. I'm looking for missing information. There isn't a stick or a tree that that person basically doesn't know if they were a kid growing up in that park. So why can't they remember anything along the left side of their memory, of this memory? Or this is likely, but not so likely, the smell of cotton candy. Can't be remembered information. I just don't remember who those people are in front of me. 
there are things that we look for so that in memory one, we then move to memory two further back in time. We're looking for a memory in early childhood. Whatever memory of the five memories was seemed to be the most acute, we say, okay, now what I'd like you to do is go back in time further from, from this event, find a memory where you taste something. Very acute, may not be as much as a sight because you see a lot, but it's acute in, in their memory of these certain items. So go back and find me a memory where you taste something. Okay, I'm there. Same way. We go through the sequence again. Only we start, instead of smell this time, we start at taste because they're, they're present with taste right now. So they go through the taste sequence. Then we return to the top of the sequence and go through, through smell and the rest of them skipping taste. The third memory, we're not really too worried about what I always said in memory two. We're setting them up for memory three. Now I'd like you to go back. We have an idea of about where that is, and that is the physical observation of the person's bare feet before we start the uh, sequence. We put a camera on the floor in front of them, their bare feet, their eyes closed, and we ask them to tell us about something that they don't like, that's not associated with what they're dealing with at the time. We're looking for fight, flight, freeze, how the toes scrunch, because when you're a baby or if you've ever observed an infant, Fingers and toes do exactly the same thing. Now, when you put socks and shoes on them, there's this mental disconnect, but they're still doing the same thing. We look for certain things to happen. A woman was talking about her grandfather and her pinky toe on her right foot did that. You can't do that. No, right? not without so, touching it, and, like moving it over. <laughs> and then when she stopped talking about grandpa, it went down just as I, if I was crossing my fingers. That was taught very early on. And about a few minutes later, we were at a grandpa's lake cabin where she was living. I said, do you ever go out on the boat with, with grandpa and go fishing? Oh, yeah. We go fishing all the time. Every time I talked about grandpa, something had happened. When we finished with that, we found that grandpa was not as nice as grandpa I've seen. Take a black. Remember me saying I couldn't remember what was on the left side of me? Mm. Take a black blanket and put it over the window. So it would darken the room and she could take her nap. And then they play secret. This is how all of this comes to play. And it's very, very specific. That is that three hours. And then for a week, they, they do a unique email journaling system to themselves. On day eight, we as a practitioner get those seven days worth of emails and we analyze it for 24 hours. And then we talk about it for an hour on the phone. Day 15, Terry, you haven't been working so well. Maybe we need to help you get fixed. Or, who are you, Terry? The original personality you were born with is now in play. How do you see yourself in the future? And we do some coaching. And then we give you two weeks off, releasing the original block. So from day one, I kept track of these people by demographic categories. We know that in science, most people for grants and things like that, they want to know a year's worth of information on each client. If they, the client falls under a certain category, a veteran with complex PTSD, I will set a call for at least one year out, see how they're doing. A lot of the stories that you're speaking about are quite traumatic. Some people listening might be like, well, I'm a procrastinator. Does that mean I'm repressing a memory that is so traumatic? But that's not always the case, is it? 
No. no. Okay. <laughs> we just want to be clear here that that all that isn't always the case. That people can have no. these behavioral expressions from just from blocking a memory of watching a dog being hit by by a car and that self-sabotage cycle can simply come from I'm not going to perform at my best right now there's something in my way of accessing all of that and as soon as I can remove whatever that block is then in all likelihood I can start to move into the fullness of who I am right putting aside the more traumatic experiences the examples that you talked about the recurring thing to me that comes through is that it's like a failure of communication or a failure of comprehension or understanding either between the the person experiencing it and the person who is that face that they associate with it or the individual person's failure to comprehend it so is it that failure of communication and comprehension that what is what is it the the sort of takeaway that you'd like our listeners to think about because we've, we've covered a whole gambit of things here what do you think is something that people can start doing that maybe will help them shift from this procrastination, the self-sabotage, this lot, without, you know, going through the whole process that you've explained so perfectly. What is something that people can start thinking about tomorrow when they hear this? The fact that this emotional event happens so early, communication skills don't exist yet. So that's out. The ability to kind of work this through is not developed yet. So there's nowhere to go with this. So the natural reflex of of the brain is to wall it off. For people like today, talk to your kids, Mm. be open conversation, be open and honest. That does more than anything. You can certainly come to the website. There's all kinds of stuff. We have videos in there. We have the process laid out, white papers that go into a lot of detail how this works. YouTube videos, Evolutionary Healer. But when it gets down to it, the human voice is the most powerful reach out to us. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Terry. Um, so you mentioned the website. You mentioned, let's just uh, get that out of the way. How do we people get in touch with you? If you have any up and coming events, people can experience this firsthand. What's on the horizon? Right now, I'm, I'm in a podcast tour. I, I have a new book, Profiling for Profit, What Cross Arms Don't Tell You. So evolutionaryhealer.com will get you about anything you want to do. Okay, so thank you so much for giving us a bit of a window into you know, the amazing work that you're doing, sharing some of those stories. Um, we like to finish off with a little bit more of a lighthearted uh, rapid-fire Q&A question, just a bit of fun. Uh, ten statements, two choices. Interpret them as suits you. Are you ready, Terry? I'm ready. Good stuff. So, okay, number one, manager or leader? Leader. And number two, active or reactive? Active. Number three, black and white or gray? Great. Number four, optimist or realist? Optimist. Number five, Canada or England? (laughs) Canada. Easier to get to. (laughs) Number six, heart or head? Heart. Number seven, empathy or assertiveness? Empathy. Number eight, introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Number nine, logical or emotional? Emotion. And number 10, innovation or process? Innovation. Fantastic. Thank you again so much for sharing that. I I really enjoy it. I get really into this. Thank you and thanks to the listeners. I hope we've been able to give you a bit of an insight and maybe you'll need to get in touch with Terry.
We love to hear all of your feedback here on TNT ESQ. So if you've enjoyed this show, you've learned something, you've been inspired, please share it with your friends. Please rate the show. Please write a review on whichever podcast uh, platform you enjoyed it on to help us spread the word, help more people think differently, and more people start doing differently. Thank you.